Welcome to the CTO Connection Podcast. I'm Peter Bell, and every couple of weeks, I'll be sharing interviews with top engineering leaders. This episode is sponsored by Code Climate. Velocity by Code Climate is an engineering analytics tool that takes commit and get insights and turns it into actionable metrics and dashboards for engineering leaders. In a few weeks, they're releasing Velocity 3.0 with Jira, which will combine Git and PR data with issue data for the first time to give engineering executives a complete understanding of how their team works. You can now see the status of every initiative without manual reporting and know exactly which engineering projects get off track and why. They're releasing the new product in November, but you can request early access by going to codeclimate.com slash CTO connection. I'm speaking today with Adam Miller, Vice President of Engineering Technology at Roblox. Adam, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. It is my pleasure to be here. Thanks, Peter. So, Adam, something I ask most of our guests, could you just give us a little bit of backstory? How did you end up as a Vice President of Engineering? What went so terribly wrong that (laughs) somebody dragged the keyboard out of your fingers? (laughs) Yeah. So, like many people, I started as an engineer, of course. Um, uh, as a kid, I was programming computers. It was always the thing I wanted to do, especially making video games. And then as I got into the industry, I was coding away and I thought, maybe someday I'll, I'll move into leadership. But it always felt like some kind of strange foreign thing. I wasn't quite sure how that would happen, but I thought it sounded really cool. So as I went into various roles, I, I quickly discovered that I would end up in some kind of leadership position in in whatever role I got into. And there's various reasons why. And then how I got to finally the vice president role, I joined Roblox as an engineering director. And after about a year, I realized that it felt like what I wanted to do, the kind of impact I wanted to have was to be a vice president of engineering. I thought I could bring that level of impact to the role and execute in that capacity. So I worked together with my manager and we figured out a plan to make that happen. Nice. And so you've been at Roblox for what, about seven years now? Seven years, yeah. (laughs) Wow. Uh, It's funny how everyone's like, yeah, I'm just going to like start this company and we'll flip it in three and, you know, a decade later, (laughs) there you still are. Yeah. I think people underestimate how long it takes to build really good technology. We're living in such a fast age, but it actually takes a long time to build software, especially software that distinguishes itself from the competition. It's a really big investment, requires a long-term vision and a lot of consistency and execution. Even a lot of the companies we think of as overnight sensations, whether it's Spotify or Pandora or whatever, they, they actually had been around for a decade before they finally cross that threshold of product market fit and achieve that success. And it's really interesting too, because you talk about the whole product market fit thing. What What's always been fascinating to me is the more that you look into those stories, again, while there is like this threshold, like enough, you know, electrons are firing that the, the current's going to go through. It seems to be that you get there through like 400 really uninteresting little tweaks rather than like, oh, this is it. I'm just going to re-architect it this weekend. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's less an epiphany than a long series of, of 
consistent projects that work towards a big vision. And a lot of it's unblocking things that just get in your way more than like some from the mountain inspiration that just changes everything. I guess it just doesn't sound as good when you're trying to recruit somebody to engineering leadership to, you will make software that sucks just a little bit less every day. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it doesn't have the same narrative pull, but um, I think that's actually part of the reason it's so hard. People are a little bit looking for that quick fix, that one little trick. Doctors hate them, that one trick to make a successful internet company. And the reality is, no, it's an enormous path of, of hard work. Absolutely. So f for anyone who doesn't know, could you just tell us a little bit about what Roblox does to set the context? Absolutely. So Roblox, as we've been mentioning in the realm of companies that have been around for a while, Roblox has been around for about 15 years now. And the vision since we started is to create a, a social co-experience platform. That means a place where people can come and play in a 3D environment and to experience 3D interactive games with their friends. And we're building a platform to do it. So we're not actually making these games themselves. What we're doing is making the tools, the infrastructure, the engine that powers a community of creators to come onto our platform and create content that can then be enjoyed by other people. So in any given month, we have about 100 million players who are coming and enjoying these different 3D experiences. And then we have approximately 2 million creators. These are people who are using our tools to make content on our platform, make games and other fun toys and experiences that they can play with their friends and then ultimately share with a wider group of people to become really popular and then for the very best people, they can actually make money out of it and, and turn that into a career. So at Roblox, we're trying to create that whole platform, make an awesome ecosystem and enable a new type of human co-experience. That's the big vision. Nice. So uh, the, the number that immediately hit me was, so 100 million players, you have some, some element of scale going on there. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a lot. And then presumably there are issues in terms of latency. I'm, I'm guessing you, you can't just get like a, a spinning dot for 45 <laughs> seconds before your, your avatar moves or... Exactly. In fact, when we think about how people experience our content, the time to enjoy is really crucial. We're trying to build this connected universe. Some call it a metaverse. It's a, a collection of virtual places and the key is to be able to go from one to the next really quickly. You don't want to say, oh, we're playing this game. Let's go play that game. And then wait 45 seconds. Even 10 seconds is too long. We're, our goal is to make it where you can go from one game to the next in one second. And so how do you do that? Well, you have to build in fundamental architectural decisions from the start to get there. So we built in a streaming platform. All our content streams. So when you join a game, you're actually streaming all that 3D information about the world live over your network connection. And that's very different from a traditional game where you'll install it on your hard drive and then play it from your hard drive. So we've built in this fundamental architecture of streaming, which enables that whole style of quick joining. And then we have a lot of infrastructure on the back end based around how do we make that latency really low? How do we make sure that every player has 
uh, a good, fast experience when they are on our platform. And presumably there's no uh, peer-to-peer, info- all of the information is going to servers and back again just for, to manage the latency issues? Yeah, so right now everything is peer-to-peer. And essentially in the game itself, you have everyone has a client they're running on their computer or their mobile device. And all the information in this real-time 3D world communicates back up to the server in the cloud and then gets resent from that server to all the other people who are in that same game at the same time. And so what we've had to do is make a big investment in bringing these servers to all places around the world where people can get really fast response time for their 3D gaming. So we've set up a lot of points of presence or pops around the world uh, in all these different locations. And we're running a lot of our own network infrastructure on top of that, like controlling the fiber and controlling uh, the actual serving of the data. And by that level of control localized, we can make it a really fast experience. Got it. So this would be one of the cases where just, just throwing it on on some kind of cloud provider does not make sense just because you, you can't manage the locations and the proximity between the devices and the, the networking layer? Yeah, that's right. We we do make some use of, of cloud providers um, in a limited capacity. So we do use AWS, we use Azure, uh, but typically for things that are not real-time or in the direct production-sensitive flow. So we'll use it more for things like back-end data processing and offline stuff. When it comes to our absolutely mission-critical product-defining technology, the speed benefit we can get from running our own hardware, our own networking infrastructure, from terminating SSL connections at remote locations. Uh, it just, it, it can't be achieved with the cloud providers at this time. Now, do you literally have uh, physical offices for all of these pops or can you use at least colo facilities? Yeah, so it's it's colo facilities. We have our own hardware, but co-located in someone else's facility. We're not we're not actually building these these places ourselves. Um, but yeah, running the hardware, our own hardware is kind of where we're at right now. Wow, that's fascinating. So, how do you deal with peak loads, and how do you deal with scale? Because I mean, historically, one of the big differences I think between like the dot com boom, the ninety nine two thousands. And then the last decade or so is it's really moved from, it used to be, if you had a cool idea for a startup, all you needed was, you know, $8 million, 50 engineers, 400 servers and two years, Mm -hmm. and you could build a prototype. Whereas now that's like a weekend and two days (laughs) in Heroku. Um, How has that impacted your ability to to both scale and to deal with peak loads if you literally have to like, we got to put an an order in for another 21 new servers? Yeah. So... We absolutely, our goal is to never run out of capacity. Now, one thing that's interesting about Roblox is we are a platform and the profile of a platform as opposed to a game looks quite different. Our growth tends to be quite steady and predictable. Now it's always up and to the right, which is good, but it is relatively constrained compared to the profile of some startup that's releasing some brand new thing that just explodes. So we, we don't have that Pokemon Go type situation where we plan for one thing and then it's just a thousand X. Right now, our growth is around 50% year over year. 
Um, so meaning in one year, the most will peak is about 50% higher than the last year. Um, in years past, we've peaked the absolute most we've ever had is 300%. And so that's a lot, but it still gives you a year. Like That's 300% over a year. You have a lot of time to plan your infrastructure. So given that kind of model we have, it's okay for us to execute within the context of our planning models and just order those servers and not have to worry that we're going to blow it out. Uh, now, that's what's worked so far. We do have some ideas about scaling into cloud providers for like bursting scenarios, but we haven't had to do that yet. More what we're focusing on is a lot of our internal technology around how do we build our own scaling infrastructure on top of our private cloud. Got it. And when you say scaling infrastructure, is this the ability to, do you use things like virtual machines or are you like dealing with the the idea of, of physical boxes in the code? Yeah. So we've, moved recently towards a more virtualized design and we're going towards docker like many people are so by deploying on docker instances we have a lot more control over how we're scaling up our vms um, we're using nomad and um, docker as, as our standard for our new deployment pipeline got it and so do, do you find that that level of virtualization is going to help in terms of just it's just the stupid stuff right when you you run servers one of the hard drives fails and the power supply blows out and all of these things that that we th we thought had disappeared as issues at least for most companies 10 years ago exactly right so we want that to be abstracted away as much as possible right now we're running i think our total deployments around 15,000 servers so at that kind of scale dealing with if any individual problem is not automatically handled, then we would be forever just chasing the tactical things. Right. And then so when you think about persistence, are there particular stores that you, how much of this stuff that's going on, how much of the data actually even needs to be persisted? I mean, do I need an event log of every place everyone moved within a given game? And uh, how, how do you think about, about persisting that information? Our backend infrastructure, we are maintaining a social network on top of our, our platform. So everyone who plays on Roblox has an account, which is their identity. And then they have their friends and their social graph. And that's very important because our play is really focused around social. So we want to make sure that everyone has that concept of their identity, the items they own, that they can dress up their virtual character, um, their chats with other people, things like that. So that's very much like a traditional website offering. We keep all that information in a traditional SQL database right now. So we're actually using MS SQL and that's working fairly well, um, although we're exploring more options as time goes on. So effectively, you're, you're being able to stay within the right scalability limitations. So you're writing to a single node effectively and you just give it a bunch of uh, RAM and hard drive space. Exactly right. Just one sort of monolithic. We have the database sharded. We actually use it in a, in a fairly uh, un-SQL-like way. Like we don't we don't do a lot of joins at runtime because those are very expensive. So we, it's it's a SQL database almost used a little bit like a NoSQL database for reasons of scale, um, which actually makes it more possible that we might migrate to a different architecture in the future. But right now, that part has not been one of our uh, larger concerns. 
there's another side of our persistence, which is really interesting, which is what we provide to our developers. So the people who are making games on top of our platform, they want to persist data too. Although what's interesting, a little funny story is when Roblox started, the, the games tended to be quite primitive and they actually had no way to save any data. So every time you played a Roblox game, you'd start from zero and you'd just have to get whatever progression you got in the course of one session and then you'd lose it and start again. Um, but it really speaks to how we've evolved as a platform that that's almost unheard of now. And you can see that the level of the sophistication of the games has increased. And one of those primary mechanisms is how do those games persist data? So what we've done at Roblox is expose a persistence layer to our 2 million developers. How do they save data? And what we're actually doing there is using Amazon's DynamoDB and wrapping that, which is a NoSQL database, and wrapping that and giving them an API that lets them uh, store and retrieve data from there. It's a system that's worked okay so far, but ultimately we'll need to evolve to something that's both more powerful and more reliable. What are some of the, the things that have surprised you as the infrastructure needs have scaled? Are there some things that you've learned that you, you perhaps wouldn't have thought of before you, you came to Roblox? Well, when I came to Roblox, I had the assumption that, of course, everyone will just go to the cloud. Like, it seemed so obvious that it just seemed crazy. Like, we're going to build our own our own server infrastructure, like in, in, well, so this is in 2012 or 2013, like everyone's going to Amazon. Of course we do that. Like, why would we do that? But it, it turns out that really when you get to a certain scale, the performance you can get, the ability of you, for you to control your, your particular hardware and deployments, and quite frankly, the cost when you're running 15,000 servers you actually can save a lot of money if you have a good team that can run that private cloud. So I was kind of surprised and I just came from this perspective, oh, you guys are, don't know what you're talking about. And then I was like, oh, okay, no, I needed to learn a little something there. Within the company, is that infrastructure abstracted away? Do you have a dev team that could pretend they're running on AWS for all they care? Or is it a leaky abstraction that developers higher up in the stack need to think about? Yeah, so... Our goal is to completely abstract all of that kind of development away. Uh, I wouldn't say we're fully there yet, but we want to abstract away what environment you're running on and even what database you're talking to. So ultimately, you can build microservices with complete abstraction and just have to think about what's the business need you're solving, how do you write the best code for that, and not have to think about the details of the implementation. Approximately how many people are, are writing code at Roblox? How, how big's the team? Yeah, so Roblox in total is about 540 people all in. I think we're at about 350 engineers, something like that. Sounds good. And then how do you think about, uh, for instance, language choice? Is there this shall all be written in Go? Or is it like, sure, give Smalltalk a try. How hard, how much, how hard could it be? Like, how do you think about the, the benefits of consistency versus the benefits of fitness for specific purpose? Yeah, so we have three different worlds that all run in parallel. And the, the first world is the server backend world. So that's how we write our traditional web services. 
Now, Roblox started out in C-sharp, which is a little bit of an unusual choice. And that was in part because it was a popular choice for the games industry. And a lot of people at Roblox came from game companies. And with Unity and stuff, it's a really good integration for that, right? Yeah, although I, this choice predated the existence of Unity. So I, I wonder if it's more a coincidence than a connection. So that was how we built our backend services. It was running on ASP.NET, which Microsoft doesn't even support anymore. Um, C Sharp is actually a great language. And I think it's actually hard to, to choose a better language than that. But where we are today is we are switching from a monolith one giant C-sharp deployment to a collection of microservices. And a lot of companies have gone through this transition. We're certainly not unique in this, but it's very important for us to enable independent deployment and development as teams scale. So when you have a monolith and you're 15 people, it's okay. But when you're 300 people, it's kind of unmaintainable. You have too much collisions. There's no way to coordinate that many people. So we're switching to a microservice architecture. And as part of that, we're saying, okay, now we can actually open up to a couple of more languages uh, because we don't have a single deploy. But like you alluded to, we want to have a balance of not going crazy overboard. So uh, we are our subset that's on the approval list is C-sharp, Java, and Go right now. And then some of the machine learning people are doing stuff in Python because it's just such a standard. And I think we're open to other possibilities as time goes on, but it's a balance. It's a trade-off between allowing people some freedom and then making it hard if there's too many languages to switch from one team to another or to maintain different CICD systems and all that complexity. Absolutely. And and that's an interesting question. So as you start to move to microservices, what is the thinking in terms of staffing for that? Is it like you build it, you own it, you live with it forever? Is it you build it, you own it, but we rotate 20% every six months for information sharing? How, how do you find that balance between new challenges versus depth of understanding for those specific subdomains? So the way we think about teams and ownership is we don't overthink it, I guess. So when some when the team owns something and builds it, they continue to run it. And if somebody moves to another team, then that's fine. They bring some knowledge with them. We don't proactively say, okay, we're going to rotate people through kind of like an APM program. We have an APM program for, for product people, but we don't have that analog for engineering. Maybe we've got a little bit of I don't know if hubris is the right word, but like I think when you have great engineers, there's an expectation, hey, you should be able to go to another team and pick that up, right? Like I think every engineer kind of believes that about themselves too, right? Oh yeah, I, I can I can learn that. How hard can it be? Right. So so that that's kind of our approach is yeah, we don't need to overthink it. We'll just make it work. And so, so far that's worked. I do think there is value in cross-pollination. So when somebody expands their scope internally and learns multiple areas, they become more than the sum of the parts in terms of the productivity they can add. You're moving from this monolith. So obviously one of the challenges is how you handle 350 people committing to and working on the same code base. 
how have you dealt with that? Do you have long-lived feature branches? Is it every feature branch needs to be five days or less? Do you do trunk-based development? Like, how do you think of that? So we try to keep our development broken up by team as much as possible. One team is essentially a self-contained unit that can deliver one successful product without needing a lot of dependencies from another team. The largest team is going to be around 20 or 30 engineers. And we find that as long as they're working in one cohesive unit, they can maintain their own deployment and schedule on that. We don't dictate a lot between teams. Like every team has to be on such and such a schedule because the individual business needs for the teams might be very different. Um, this is true for our like scheduling system too. Like some teams will use Jira, some teams will be on some one week sprints or two week sprints, whatever it is. These things actually feed into um, the development pipeline. They're they're kind of connected, and I think it can vary a lot depending on the type of team, the type of project they're working on, how mature it is, the deployment strategy, and other things. We have some teams that have to deploy code that goes to platforms that need to be verified. So for example, Apple, Xbox, Android, uh, that has dependencies on CICD that have uh, certain implications in terms of how they have to ship their code, what kind of flow it is that other teams who are just deploying microservices may not have. So we give teams a lot of flexibility, hire great people and hope that they'll figure out uh, the best approach. And I'm hearing that more and more is because I feel like there was a time where everyone was like, hey, we've got to standardize on Jira. So we've got roll up so that we can run organization wide metrics and comparisons and stuff. And I, I, it seems like the pendulum is swinging more towards small teams of highly capable people and just kind of giving them the autonomy to make the decisions that are right for their use cases, because sometimes the same tooling across different product lines just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I agree. And of course, at a high level, there needs some company cohesion. So we have different systems at the, at the much more macro level for tracking uh, cross-company efforts, like big projects, quarterly plans. All that is unified into one system, which of course is spreadsheets because like no conventional tracking system ever is quite what you want. So you're, you're always going to build a spreadsheet in the end. Um, and so that's what we do. Got it. That's great. Well, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much, Peter. This episode was sponsored by Code Climate. Velocity by Code Climate is an engineering analytics tool that takes commit and git insights and turns it into actionable metrics and dashboards for engineering leaders. In a few weeks, they're releasing Velocity 3.0 with Jira, which will combine git and PR data with issue data for the first time to give engineering executives a complete understanding of how their team works. You can now see the status of every initiative without manual reporting and know exactly which engineering projects get off track and why. They're releasing the new product in November, but you can request early access by going to codeclimate.com slash CTO connection. This episode was produced by the amazing team over at Dante32, a podcast production agency focusing on content strategy, audio production, and distribution. Check them out at dante32.com. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. Thank you.